Welcome to the Catholic Cafe, where all that the Catholic Church believes and teaches is served fresh daily. So come on in and see what's on the menu today. Now, here's your host, Deacon Jeff Drzymski. Greetings and welcome to the Catholic Cafe. I'm Deacon Jeff, sitting in the luxurious corner booth of the Catholic Cafe. Uh, we're here in France, in Lourdes, France, uh, for our, our pilgrimage with the Order of Malta. It's, it's been fantastic. It's been beautiful. It's wonderful. We're kind of wrapping things up here. And we have a, a, a tremendous guest here, uh, Robert. They say lightning never strikes twice in the same place. But here at the Catholic mm-hmm. Cafe, lightning has struck twice. Has That's it right. Not? Two years in a row. That's exactly right. We, we are with a wonderful guest. It's His Most Eminent Highness, the Prince and 79th Grand Master of the Sovereign Military Hospitaller Order of St. John of Jerusalem, of Rhodes, and of Malta. It's from Matthew Festing. Now, unfortunately, Your Highness, we've actually run out of time in reading your, uh, your title there. <laughs> we have very little time left for an interview, but uh, we'll do the best we can. But thank you so much for joining us here, Your Highness. Don't, don't forget that the Grand Master's subsidiary title is Humble Servant of the Poor of Christ. And they, you always get all this stuff about princes and all this jazz, but actually... There, one of the popes, I forget which one, also said that the Grand Master should be called humble servant of the poor of Christ. Do you like that one better? Your of course Highness? I do. <laughs> Much better. It sounds nicer. It, it does sound nicer. nicer. Absolutely. <laughs> well, Your Highness, we brought you here, I think, to talk a little bit about the Order of Malta. We, we want to talk about the relevance of the Order today. This, we, we live in a, a very complex world, in a world of great need. The same world that Jesus was born into 2,000 years ago, and here we are still in need of Jesus, and we become the, the hands of Christ, uh, you know, and, the, and we offer love to our, our brothers and sisters that we encounter. And so the Order of Malta is knee-deep in that, are they not? Yeah, sure, of course. I mean, anybody who wants to watch Michael do good, if you like, in inverted commas, they, you, know, you, can in, you can join any um, humanitarian organization. It doesn't matter really which one you joined. Um, but if you want one which has got a Christian ethos to it, a Catholic ethos to it, then I guess it's us. We, we certainly combine two things. Firstly, helping the poor and the sick. And secondly, um, this, this other charism of the order, which is Tuitio Fidei. And that is not so much the defense of the faith, but the nurturing of the faith. Um, Again, not the teaching, but the business of trying to encourage people in their faith. And the two things are very much bound up together in the work of the Order. Your Highness, uh, what drew you to the Order of Malta? Because, I mean, how did you get involved, and what do you see as unique? What what drew you into the work? I can tell you exactly. This place got me involved. Um, A number of my relations, admittedly, were members of the the Order of Malta. Um, And when I first left the army, my uncle said, right, now listen to me. In the spring, you're large and strong. You will come to Lourdes and work with the sick. And I thought, well, it sounds like um, a sort of challenge, I suppose, really, because I didn't think I had any particular talent, if you like, for looking after the sick. But, of course, I came, I think, for the first time here in 1974, and I've been coming ever since because it's a great place of inspiration. So certainly what drew me to the order was, was, was Lourdes. Was the working with the sick... In the, in, in the, yes, I think, it, I, well, again, rather like when you said before, why, why do you want, you know, why does somebody become a member of the Order of Malta or, or work for it? Well, because it's this interesting combination of the religious side of it 
and the practical side of it, and I find that most attractive. Why do you think that that Catholic element, that Christian element, why do you think that adds to the humanitarian part of it? Well, I think one of the things, of course, is that we're, we're taught, are we not, in the church, that Christ is present in all of us. And that means, remember there was a famous St. Elizabeth of Hungary a very long time ago now, uh, but she was very keen on looking after the sick. And she clearly, and she, she was quoted as saying, that she genuinely saw Christ in every bed that she went round in the hospital. Well, um, she was much more saintly than I am, and more saintly probably than most of us. But it's an interesting concept. And, and it's the same concept as you have here, is that the people you are helping, the people you are looking after, should be, um, as it were, the, the, the representatives, if you like, the manifestation, if you like, of Christ. So that's a very important, seems to me, to be a very important aspect of it. In Your Highness, other than Lourdes, where are the areas that you see the work of the Order serving the sick? What, what are your, I don't want to say your favorite projects of the Order, but what are you most proud of or, or really enjoy the most that the order is doing in the world today to serve the sick and the poor? I think um, the answer to that, I think, is that everywhere there is a challenge, which is interesting. And there are, there's plenty to do what you might call at home. You know, if you're in the States, there's things to do. If you're in France, there's things to do on your doorstep. There's that you can involve yourself in. That's an important thing. As they say, charity begins at home. So there is that. But then I think also there are all the extraordinary challenges of developing parts of the world. Central Africa has the most dreadful problems. Quite extraordinary. I was in the Congo not very long ago. And the sheer size of the problems are enormous. And it's a vast place. Um, It's now, with the spitting of Sudan, uh, it's now the biggest country in Africa. It's at least as big as Europe. It's about a third of the size of the United States. It's one country. And, of course, they have no idea how many people they've got there either. So the problems of a country like that are enormous. Also, very interesting, I went to, um, for the very first time ever, to South America last year. And I was very, very struck by the huge amount of work there is there in the awful favelas on the outskirts of some of the cities, which clearly there's a lot of work to do, but also there's a huge amount of work which I think the order can um, do in places like the the western part of the Amazon, because up against the Andes are all these tribes who have, they have no um, medical cover at all, Again, a lot of these people, they live in very remote villages, there are no facilities of any sort, no electricity, no medical, no, uh, no churches, I mean, nothing at all. Completely subsistence agriculture. The only sign of anything that you see, um, which seems to have arrived from outside, is corrugated iron for the roof. Mm-hmm. Um, everything else, you, you might as well be there in a thousand years, years ago. And, and I think that's a huge challenge for us, because, of course, the secret... To, to a slightly longer lifespan for all these people is, for instance, things like clean water supplies. And I think that's one of the great challenges for us is this business of trying to provide clean water over the developing parts of the world. And is the order working with de- providing clean water right now? Yes, we, we have a... We have a, a, a um, um, in fact, needless to say, it's got one of these silly acronyms, mm-hmm. but it's known as the WASH scheme. The WASH scheme? Yes, W-A-S-H. And you're now going to ask me what it stands for, and I'm going to say it. I can't quite remember, to be honest That's with okay, you. It's okay, I do that But you remember the WASH <laughs> But it's yeah. water and, I tell you what, I think it's water and sanitary hygiene is what oh. it stands for. 
But, I mean, it's entirely dependent on water because, of course, with decent water, then you prevent disease. Because there's a huge, I mean, for example, huge infant mortality, huge mortality of people in childbirth. So it helps to sort those problems out, or I say sort them out, but begin to sort them out anyway. Right, because there's so much of that, I guess. You can't solve it all, but you just do, we do our part. Mm. We do. But I think the other thing about it, of course, is that um, what, we, what we are very much up against um, is the whole business of reacting to things that take place. Now, in the last year, we've been very, very lucky because for the first time for quite a long time, there hasn't been a single really major disaster. You know, we had Haiti before, we then had tsunami, we had the cyclones, Burma, Burma da da all, you know, one upon another. As it happens, the last year has been more or less disaster-free. Now, I guess it's a stupid thing to say, because probably this time tomorrow there'll be another. But we have been lucky in the last year. But still there are many things to do, because uh, we just did a show with the Global Fund for the Forgotten People. And they're focused specifically on those people that are in between, left behind, and basically forgotten and not known about. And so still, even though there's not a disaster, there are still many, many disasters Right? All over the, all uh, over the world. Of course. And, I mean, one of the things, after all, you, you know, I don't need to tell you because you know you understand how the media works. But the reason that we react to, to events is usually because the media brings it in front of us. And then, of course, when for one reason or another it becomes not newsworthy, well, of course, the media rush off to the next sensation, and that's professionally what they do. And, of course, everybody then forgets that the people are left behind. You know, when did we last, perhaps it's different in the States, when did we last in Europe hear about Haiti? At least a year ago. I mean, it's never, it's never, ever. We hear about it every once in a while, but it's significantly dropped off. Significantly right. dropped. Well, here, it's dropped off to the extent that it's dropped out completely. Right. And, and the same is, I mean, use that example, but there are many others. I mean, we were about um, oh, nearly 20 years ago now, I was very much involved in, in working in Bosnia and the other states in the Balkans, but particularly in Bosnia. And I know perfectly well that there are plenty of things in Bosnia which need doing which have not been completed. Um, and I know, I know, for instance, somebody who is involved in trying to teach first aid in the remote villages up in the, in the mountains of central Bosnia, and it's forgotten about. And nobody, nobody will provide funding for this sort of thing simply because it's off, the, it's off the radar screen, if you like. But the needs are still there, huge needs. What are our instruments, Your Highness, and in, in, um, how do we do that? We do that, is that Maltese International, or is that uh, the local parts of the Order of Malta? Or? <clears throat> well, we operate, basically speaking, we operate in, in, two, in two ways. One is via this Maltese International, which you know about, which every part of the order, or nearly every part of the order, is, is part of. And what happens is that via that particular organization, we're able to do lots of good work on a centralized basis. And then also, different parts of the order have particular contacts and influence in other areas. So, for example, the French, a very good example of this, they do a huge amount of work in the former colony, former French colonies of West Africa. Every, I would say just about every single former French colony has some sort of scheme going on which is overseen by the French Association. And they do an enormous amount of good work. And the other, the other former colonial countries... Um, within the order, I mean, my own included, are much less active in the former colonies. 
And I suppose now, I mean, in the, the, you know, the, the American sphere of influence, after all, is another. It's not quite like the old empires, but it's another parallel thing. And I think the different parts of the order really should have a responsibility in some ways for um, looking after the people that were formerly under their control. Well, there's lots going on in the world and lots for the Order of Malta to do, and we're going to talk more about what the Order of Malta is doing and its relevance in the world today in just a moment after we take a short break. Before we do that, I want to remind everyone at home we have a website, www.thecatholiccafe.com, and actually there's a link on our website to the Order of Malta's website to have you find out more information about the Order of Malta if you so choose. But also I'd love for you to email me at deaconjeff at thecatholiccafe.com. And so with that, we'll be back. I'm Bess Drzymski, and this is another great moment in church history. Late in the 11th century, next to the Holy Sepulchre in the Holy Land was a Benedictine monastery called St. Maria Latina, and the guest house of this monastery was begun the first hospital called the Hospital of Jerusalem, and it was dedicated to serving not only the poor, but pilgrims to the Holy Land, as well as those fighting in the Crusades against the Ottoman forces oppressing Jerusalem. This hospital fell into the care of a dedicated and humble Benedictine monk at the monastery named Gerard of Amalfi. Known as Blessed Gerard, he founded a new order in the year 1099 called the Hospitallers of St. John or the Knights of St. John, dedicated to St. John the Baptist. This order is now called the Order of Malta. Blessed Gerard remained dedicated to the twofold mission of the order his entire life the defense of the faith and the assistance to the poor and the suffering. There is an old painting in Rome which depicts Blessed Gerard handcuffed and holding a loaf of bread. Tradition tells the story that while Jerusalem was under the control of the Ottomans, he stood at the walls and pretended to throw stones at the crusaders outside of the city. What he was actually throwing was bread to satisfy the hunger of those Christians fighting to retake the city. As the order grew, so also did support for its good works. Soon more hospitals were being built and the Knights of Malta were ever in demand to defend the faith, in some cases to the death. But the Knights never lost sight of their purpose. Even after battle, before they were fed, they personally fed and attended to the needs of those in their care at the hospitals. Blessed Gerard died simply on September 3rd in 1120. His epitaph in the convent he founded aptly sums up his life and reads, here lies Gerard, the humblest man among the dwellers in the East, the servant of the poor, a welcoming friend to strangers. He was lowly in demeanor, but within him shone a noble heart. The measure of his goodness may be seen within these walls. He was provident in many things, painstaking in all he did. He undertook many tasks of diverse nature, stretching out his arms diligently to many lands. He gathered from everywhere the means to feed his people. The works of Blessed Gerard continue today, as the Order of Malta spans the globe with its works of aid to the poor and suffering, and the defense of the truths of the Catholic faith. I'm Bess Drzymski, and this is another great moment in church history. Welcome back to the Catholic Cafe. Here's Deacon Jeff. 
And we're back in the luxurious corner booth of the Catholic Cafe, made ever more luxurious by our humble servants. Of the poor. Yeah, of the poor of Christ. <laughs> your, your Highness, thank you so much for joining us here. And uh, we appreciate you taking the time to talk about the Order of Malta and its, its relevance in the world today. Now, a lot of people may not realize that this is a religious order, that there's a spirituality to what you're doing here. And that's an important part of the Order of Malta, is it not? Absolutely. Um, what is interesting is that when the Order was first founded by Blessed Gerard 900 years ago, more than 900 years ago now, um, I don't think it ever, as far as I can tell, difficult for us to know exactly, I don't think he foresaw it as anything other than a religious order. So fundamentally, that is what it is, why it was founded. That was its original ethos. Well, have, has it lost that character? It hasn't, but of course it's been... It's been, um, if you like, camouflaged by the fact that the actual members of the order who make the, the monastic vows are about 70 in number, and then we have about 13,500 other members of the order who have not made that monastic commitment. So heavily leaning towards the heavily those leaning not towards the other. And now, of course, we have this enormous number of other people. Uh, if you total up all the people who work with us, for us, paid, unpaid, and everything else around the world, we are at approximately 98,000 people. So it, it is, it, the, it, the fact that it's got this religious core, if you like, has become slightly camouflaged by this enormous organization which it has gathered sort of round it. But I imagine you would agree that it's vitally important to the order that we not forget that, that we keep that in the fore. Oh, sure, of course. Well, otherwise, because if we don't keep it, we become like any other. You know, we become like a fairly large, or middle-sized anyway, um, NGO, you know, non-government organization. I mean, there are plenty of them around the world. Um, but we differ because, A, we're a religious order, and, B, because we have this sovereign entity as well. If you are trying to encourage an understanding of the religiosity or the, the spiritual nature of what you're doing, how is that borne out in the world? How do people recognize the religious aspect of the order? Well, I think it's interesting. There are one or two other orders which do something vaguely like us. The brothers of St. Camillus are one. The brothers of St. John of God are another. They are very much concentrated on actual nursing operations, really, in truth. I mean, they, you know, they work in hospitals, they run their own nursing homes on, a, on a, um, a much more, firstly, much smaller, and secondly, um, much, in some ways, much more simple method of doing it. Whereas in our case, we have all these huge number of people spread all over the world doing things. And uh, I would, of course, love to have a representative knight of justice, which is what we call the, the religious okay. brothers, uh, I would like to have one in charge of every single scheme around the world. But, of course, if you have all these vast schemes, you can't actually necessarily rely on about 70 people to do yeah, it. You need more than 70 for a worldwide organization. You certainly do. Well, what makes it a religious order? But What, what are the things that you do differently? Well, we don't do it differently from really any other order. What are the things which make a religious, in the technical sense, what do they make a religious person? Firstly, their religious commitment. Secondly, in the Catholic Church, their celibacy. Thirdly, the business of saying their prayers every day, i.e. the monastic office every day. So that's what our guys do too. They, they say a, a relatively simple form of the monastic office, but every, they say that something like every priest says... In our case, it's, we had a dispensation to say 
um, the little office of Our Lady, which is fairly simple. Most people actually don't see it. They say the ordinary office of the church. Um, but there is that to begin with that they do. And secondly, um, they then, um, as it were, uh, couple that up with working in the hospital field. That's what, we, that's what they're expected to do. I think one thing that is really interesting to me, uh, Your Highness, and the reason I got involved in the order is because I saw it as a way to sort of make my Catholic faith um, present. It was not, I mean, there are a lot of other things I think Catholics get involved with, the Society of St. Vincent de Paul and people working with the poor, but, but what's unique about this is I felt like it's not only hands-on work with the poor, but it's also being part of a religious community where I feel like when I pray, I'm praying in communion with the brothers and, and things. Um, so how do you see um, going forward? What, what do you think is, um, how should we grow our spirituality as an order? I mean, is that important? Or are you, um, or do we have programs to try to get more professed or to try to increase the spirituality of the members to see this as a... A way of doing well, this is, this is something which is developing all the time. Of course it is. And, and we, we, if you think about it, um, 200 years ago, or a bit more than 200 years ago, um, say in the 1790s, the order was sitting in Malta. It had been there for 200 and odd years. It was a very stable organization. It knew what it was doing. It knew what it's, it, the point of it was. And then Napoleon arrived and chucked the order out. And that was caused, I think, a great deal of upset to the order. Now, at the time, my predecessor, I think, was horrified, absolutely horrified, and I think, poor man, he died very rarely of a broken heart as a result of it. But in fact, of course, it was a great blessing, because it means that instead of worrying about the government of a small country, which is one of the things we were involved in. With health care and a military and all that other stuff. But now we're able to actually, I think, concentrate on the things which... Um, I like to think that if Blessed Gerard was to come through the door right now, he would recognize in what we're doing now more of his original ideas than in the 1700s. Than if he'd gone in the 1700s. But don't forget, even then, they still ran a hospital in Malta. They still dealt with disaster relief. There was a huge um, earthquake uh, in, I think, 1786, I think is the date, sometime around then, uh, in Sicily. And the very first thing that happened was the order sent its fleet in order to help the people who were victims of the earthquake. But in general terms, I think what we do now is closer, I suspect, to the founder's ideal. At least I hope it is. And that is what I think, you know, we must try and develop. But, of course, every organization is... To an extent, um, it's inevitably a, 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 not a victim of, but certainly a, it's, um, it's a child of its past, inevitably. And it's taken us, um, I think, quite a long time, as it were, to forget the position we were in at the end of the 18th century and find our feet again in our position today in the 21st century. And even in the time that I've been a member of the order, I've seen a very considerable change. You know, a few years ago... It was, it, was a, it was a very different organization from what it is now. We've done a great job, I think, of sort of talking about the relevance of the order today. But why don't we cast our gaze to the future? Let's cast our gaze to 50 years from now. You're 
you'll be you'll be seventy five in fifty years, uh, <laughs> your highness, and so you'll still be prince and grandmaster. It'll be great. Uh, okay. And so the question is, what do you, what do you see the order? Its relevance? Will it still be as relevant? Will it be different? Do you think? I'm just thinking. What are, what are your plans and hopes for for the future of the order? Well, we all of course have plans. We all have plans and hopes too. But you, what you have to do, I think, is to put your little paw, your sticky little hand in the hand of God and let him see where he takes you um, I think is the way to do it you have to accept what he organizes for you you have to trust him um, and I, it's very difficult for me to second guess where we're going to go um, we have I think to be as well as reactive we have to be a bit proactive that's for sure we have to take the um, opportunities which present themselves to us no doubt at all about that it's difficult to say. I, I think there will always be um, there will always be challenges for us. There's a famous quotation, and I'm now trying to remember who said it, and I've forgotten at this minute. But somebody many, many, many years ago, it might have been Raymond Dupuis or one of the early one of the earlier figures of the order, said, "While there is suffering in the world, the order." It was before we were in Malta. The order of St. John will continue. While there is suffering, the order will always be there because there will always be a need for it. And I guess that's, you know, that, that's where we're going to go. But if you said exactly what, it's rather like asking a politician something. You know, it's, it's very difficult for me to, to suddenly say, well, I think there's going to be problems, you know, awful problems to deal with in China or Iceland or Norway or Patagonia. Well, I just don't know. Um, but it's, it, as a sort of business of, of, of roughly where we're going, I think we continue with the religious side of life, that's for sure. And we then, one of the reasons we've survived for so long also, of course, is the fact that we have been, I hope, intelligent enough to react to circumstances and change quite often. Because we're very pragmatic. Oh, it sure. Started as a hospital and then had to take on a military function, I guess, and... And now we've had to rechange again, um, in, in consistent with what the times dictated. That's right. Sure. I mean, what is interesting, though, is that all the way through, if you look at the detailed history of what happened, okay, they were soldiers for a bit, they were sailors for a bit, but always, there's always been this hospitaler work at the basis of it all. That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Your Highness, for being here to enlighten us about the Order of Malta, give us more uh, food for thought, as it were. Remind folks uh, at home that they can go to uh, www.thecatholiccafe.com. We've got a link to the Order of Malta's website there. Um, and uh, send me an email at deaconjeff at thecatholiccafe.com if you want to know more, uh, and I can forward that on to you. Um, Your Highness, thank you so much for being here and, and joining us uh, here in the uh, luxurious corner booth of the Catholic Cafe. Thank you. We're going to invoke the intercession of Our Lady of Lourdes, and we're going to pray a Hail Mary for the work of the order. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Hail Mary. Full, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to The Catholic Cafe. If you'd like to contact Deacon Jeff, send an email to deaconjeff at thecatholiccafe.com. The Catholic Cafe is brought to you by the Order of Malta Federal Association and is broadcast with ecclesial permission from J. Terry Stive, Bishop of Memphis in Tennessee. 
Join us again at the Catholic Cafe. There's always room for one more at our table. 